Welcome to Music and Medicine. My name is Jacques Osmo, and music is my life. In this show, we will discuss the newest research on the intersection of music and medicine from scientific, musical, and historical perspectives. And most importantly, I hope that what you hear in this program will help you identify how to use music to make your own life healthier and happier. Today, we have a great pleasure of having with us Dr. Lee Bartel. Dr. Bartel is a professor emeritus of music and former associate dean of research at the Faculty of Music, University of Toronto, and the founding director of the Music and Health Research Collaboratory. Dr. Bartel, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. I was first introduced to your work by watching your talk at a TEDx Collingwood event in 2017. The talk was absolutely fascinating. Um, and quite frankly, we can just start this interview right away by talking about some of the things you mentioned in this talk, such as so many uses of sound and single pitch at 40 hertz frequency. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, yes, um, my research went from, uh, you know, general music and music entrainment and building and signals to where we were starting to focus on single pitch frequencies and 40 hertz is one uh, that I landed on, um, not that I originated the, the idea. It came out of vibroacoustic therapy, uh, which was led by, um, proposed and promoted by and innovated by Olaf Skilla in uh, Norway and Peter Lekonen in Finland over the years. But what they had not done was made a, a really strong connection to the effect that might have on neurology or on the brain. Mm -hmm. And so I had been doing brainwave and training uh, recordings for Somerset for the general commercial market for to help people go to sleep, to uh, relax, uh, and so on. And uh, so I was looking at standard brainwave states, and so alpha and delta and, and so on. But it occurred to me when I came across this notion that uh, some of the frequencies were particularly potent for conditions uh, of health and perhaps in Alzheimer's and other things that... We could also entrain in a similar way gamma frequencies in the mm -hmm. 30 to 100 hertz frequency. And that was exactly where the vibroacoustic therapy people were focusing their work, but without thinking about it, without focusing directly on the brain. And so I made that connection and started looking into this area and discovered uh, work, for example, by Rodolfo Linas, who in the early 90s, pointed to the fact that he, or that observation he made, which was that when people develop Alzheimer's, they seem to have less responsive uh, uh, brain response in the 40 hertz or in the gamma frequency. And uh, I should clarify uh, that when we say 40 hertz, we use that sort of as a shorthand for that zone, that area of gamma. So it could be 35 to 45. It doesn't have to be absolutely precisely 40 hertz. It's sort of the rough uh, the, the way to talk about it. And Matt, and please so, ask you, Matt, please ask yeah. you before we continue, just if you could please just clarify for our listeners when you're talking about these frequencies, what does that actually mean? Okay, so what we're referring to 
the common term is brainwave. What it really is, is uh, oscillatory coherence. That is, neurons are firing together in synchrony at that particular frequency. So when uh, we say uh, 40 hertz uh, and we're driving 40 hertz synchrony or oscillatory coherence at that frequency. So when you stimulate the brain with uh, a pulse that has 40 pulses per second, which is what hertz mm -hmm. is, it's a number per second, and if this comes at the uh, brain through the ear, for example, low E or E flat on the piano, are at that frequency, though you on the piano, you basically hear the overtones, not the fundamental, you will see, receive that many molecular compressions that come to the ear, and you will get that kind of a, a, a response that is now firing the auditory nerve into the, the thalamus, and that then, as it's processed, into the cortex. And the brain, um, neurons in the brain seem particularly happy to join in the dance. That is, they're sort of sitting around and saying, oh, these neurons are getting a workout at, at 40 hertz. Let's join in and, and, and join the dance. And so you have increasing number of neurons, which we call the coherence, that are now pulsing together. And that uh, coherence uh, of a steady state that is driving that frequency can have uh, implications for circuit function and consequently for health conditions.
We've just heard the first movement of Johann Sebastian Bach's Violin Concerto No. 1 in A minor, performed by Isabelle Faust on violin, accompanied by Académie für Alte Musik Berlin. Today we are speaking with Dr. Lee Bartel. Dr. Bartel is a professor emeritus of music and former associate dean research at the Faculty of Music, University of Toronto, and the founding director of the Music and Health Research Collaboratory. And that's where, when I first got into this area, that's where I started to look. And uh, Rodolfo Linas had pointed to Alzheimer's. So one of my first studies, which I did talk about in the TED Talk, was uh, just a small pilot study with 18 people, uh, six mild, six medium, six advanced Alzheimer's. And we stimulated them with 40 hertz for 30 minutes, twice a week for three weeks. Uh, In other words, six uh, treatments, And we used that chair, the next wave chair, which has sort of, I guess you could describe as six subwoofer speakers built into the Mm -hmm. chair so that you could also feel this vibration because 40 hertz is very, very low and many speakers, earphones don't reproduce it well. And so when you also feel it through your body, the mechanoreceptors in the body transmit that signal then to the brain as, as we might in common language say the nerves fire. Uh, at the brain, the mechanoreceptors connect into that system. And so we then get a stimulus across the sensory motor cortex. And since there's an auditory dimension also into the auditory cortex, and the thinking was if, in fact, Alzheimer's people had a reduced level of gamma activity of coherence, their mm-hmm. ner- the, the neurons had stopped firing together, that if we would in this case, drive them with vibrotactile and auditory frequency that they there would be more coherence. There would be greater power at that frequency in the circuits, in the memory circuits. And what we found was, uh, and what we had anticipated was that this might have an effect during the, you know, the half hour or the hour, you know, following the treatment that, that mm-hmm. maybe the neurons would power up and maybe it would make more memory connections, and then it would decay rather quickly as the neurons, you know, decided they weren't getting this the stimulus anymore, and they just returned to the state they were in. We were very surprised when, in fact, this turned into a cumulative effect. In other words, it didn't decay completely, and so, you know, three days later, they again get the treatment, and the uh, cognitive function seemed to improve every time. We had a uh, an effect size of 0.57 uh, or something of that sort that showed that this over six treatments actually improved considerably. And then uh, within a half year of our publication, MIT, uh, Li Hui Tsai and her team showed that they were getting this kind of an effect driving 40 hertz uh, through visual stimulation, through visual mm-hmm. flicker with Alzheimer's mice. And it was a very strong confirmation of this idea that Alzheimer's was related, uh, the symptoms of Alzheimer's were related to a decrease in uh, gamma uh, coherence in the brain. And they then uh, at MIT published this in in Nature uh, to great acclaim because, but they were using only visual stimulation and they then immediately went into doing this with auditory stimulation and vibrotactile like we had done. And what they found is that, in fact, auditory stimulation was more potent than visual stimulation. And at this point, they're combining the two 
and we're still combining vibrotactile and auditory. Have a study underway right now in Canada, um, and so they are working on combining visual and uh, an auditory. But the the big uh, re, you know the big finding, the big result was that it wasn't just driving neural circuits into better performance; it was reducing the concentration of amyloid beta by as much as 50 plus percent in their study uh, with mice, whether it has the same effect on mm -hmm. humans, you know, always remains to be seen, but they did have a dramatic effect on mice It also reduced inflammation It increased uh, the, the size of the blood vessels uh, that bring blood to the brain. And so many of the factors that are involved in the potential and, you know, the, the putative cause of, of uh, Alzheimer's were improved by, this stimulation of auditory, vibrotactile, and in their case, visual stimulation. So it, it's became an ex, it's an exciting area, and uh, you know they have stayed with that. Uh, my work has also gone into the area of pain uh, with fibromyalgia, and uh, we're currently taking that not just to a clinical study, which we've done two uh, pilot study, then an RCT. Uh, now to look at the mechanism, uh, and is it perhaps that this vibrotactile and auditory stimulation reduces inflammation as uh, Li Hui Tsai found with Alzheimer's that that inflammation reduction also applies uh, and with, uh, with fibromyalgia and potentially thereby reduces the pain. We're currently also recruiting for a study uh, looking at the cognitive effects of COVID, um, the, the long COVID effects that we're having uh, a bit of a difficult time recruiting uh, participants mm. right now because it's hard to find them. But uh, the same essential approach applies there that if we can reduce inflammatory uh, cytokines, the inflammation associated with, with uh, COVID, that potentially we can reverse some of the negative effects of it. Mm.
And this was the first movement of Giovanni Battista Pergolesi's Stabat Mater, performed by Sandrine Pieux, soprano, Christopher Laurie, countertenor, accompanied by Letta Lenz Lyrique and directed by Christophe Rousset. Today we are speaking with Dr. Lee Bartel. Dr. Bartel is a professor emeritus of music and former associate dean research at the Faculty of Music, University of Toronto, and the founding director of the Music and Health Research Collaboratory. This is, this is such an incredible work. If I may go back to, to uh, the treatment of Alzheimer's, you did mention in your talk a particular patient who was treated through your method, and then three years later, you met them, and it seemed that the, the condition has reversed to a great deal. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, yes, reversed would be overstating it, <clears throat> but what we found with this patient was that we essentially stopped the advance. And this, okay. this is published in, in, a, in a journal, Music and Medicine. Uh, we, we did a, a, a publication of this case. And so what the way it unfolded was this person was diagnosed with Alzheimer's fairly early stage uh, in, in about May of the, the, the year. And we got permission or you know invited her to engage in this case study by December of that year. So within... Mm-hmm. Uh, seven or eight months of her first diagnosis. So in other words, we caught it early, which is very important with Alzheimer's. And we engaged her in 12 treatments in January. So multiple times a week for four weeks. And we noted at that time that there was a significant improvement in uh, cognitive performance that we could observe. In other words, she was more aware of her, uh, the world and surroundings. Uh, She was more cogent. She seemed to remember the name of her grandchildren more easily, mm-hmm. et cetera. We used the St. Louis uh, University mental uh, status uh, test for the slums. And then she, they, they left the Toronto area, and we gave her a portable unit that allowed her to listen to music that had a lot of, it was set primarily in the key of E, so the fundamental um, the, the, the tonic was an, was a, was an E note, which is around, could be, in this case was 40, 41 Hertz. And over the course of listening to that music for about 30 minutes, she would get about 10 minutes of 40 Hertz stimulation. So not as much as we were doing in the intensive treatment mm-hmm. with vibrotactile, but she was getting vibrotactile sort of from, from hip area up to her shoulders and auditory stimulation. And we encouraged her to use it you know, every day, if possible, for something like 30 minutes. And so a year later, I met, I guess about a year later, I met her husband and asked how it was going. And he said, you know, she loves the, the treatment. Uh, she does it almost every day. I asked how her mental condition was. And he said, well, he hadn't really noticed any deterioration, which uh, I thought, well, that's good news. That's, that's remarkable. Really if we can stop Alzheimer's development, that's major progress. If we, you know, it would be great if we could cure it or roll it back. Uh, about another year later, I met them at a very busy cocktail party with about 150 people in a large space. It was noisy. 
and the kind of condition that a typical, a typically a person with Alzheimer's developing might find difficult in which to communicate and, and function. Mm-hmm. And she seemed to engage in conversation quite well. Uh, she seemed to be uh, remembering, uh, she was talking about playing golf uh, the, the summer. So this wasn't about October. So she re- talked about golf playing in the summer. And I thought to myself, what I want just to add uh, the, the real task. She asked to find the, the restrooms and in this very large house, uh, which she didn't seem to be familiar with. Uh, she, they told her where it was and off she went by herself and she came back to the group. In other words, there was no confusion or spatial orientation mm-hmm. problems or memory. So I thought to myself, we should reassess her uh, and see whether in fact she has continued to, to, to stay um, without development. And so we invited her to participate in this actual case study. We requisitioned hundreds of pages of medical records we brought her into uh, Baycrest Hospital again, which was where we had treated her, and did the same assessment. And we found that from the initial assessment on the MMSE, the mental uh, test that is typically used with Alzheimer's, um, she had not changed one point. In other words, she was still not in her, you know, she wasn't like a, a person 20 years younger where she had mm-hmm. no mental uh, deficits. But it hadn't gotten worse, which over three years with Alzheimer's is a major accomplishment. And so we took her case to be a very positive indication that perhaps this kind of music that wasn't it wasn't in this case just a single pitch, heavy duty, you know, sitting on subwoofers treatment, but simply mm-hmm. using music that had a strong uh, 40 hertz, 41 hertz frequency and it played through a device that would would carry that. It was a vibrotactile device. Um, might, in fact, delay the development of Alzheimer's. And so, you know, for us, that was a very positive thing. We published the, 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 the case, and it's there for, you know, people who want to find it can, can go and see this in music and medicine. So I'm going to ask you, so how long ago was this? Um, this was, oh, golly. Um, we published the first paper in 2016, and we did the case following that. So I, I don't okay. recall the exact publication date for that paper, but, you know, it was within the last five years. Uh, the lady was fairly aged and has since then passed away, mm-hmm. but not, uh, as far as I know, from, you know, what we would say Alzheimer's conditions. It was, it was, a, it was another, uh, found, you know, another reason. All right. So there was a definitive proof that this worked. There was evidence that it slowed the development Mm -hmm. of Alzheimer's. Uh, And if we take the mechanisms that were discovered with mice at MIT, then we probably know why that delay happened. In other words, if, if using gamma stimulation through auditory and vibrotactile means reduces the development of amyloid beta or removes it, increases blood flow to the brain, reduces inflammation, you're removing three of the primary uh, correlations with the development of Alzheimer's. And if that happens, you would expect that there would be a cessation of development. In other words, you would stop the progress of the, right. of the condition. We can't, of course, extrapolate this to the world. We can't claim that this will happen for everybody. She was a per- perhaps a unique case but it was an encouraging human case. At MIT, this was done with mice. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and the question is, can that research also, you know, to translate into humans? And our study of 18 people, which showed this, you know, quite dramatic improvement over three hours of stimulation, and this one case over three years of stimulation is an encouraging one. And so we continue to, to, to work on this. So right now, the study we have underway uh, is trying to compare vibrotactile stimulation, vibrotactile and auditory stimulation at 40 hertz with engagement with familiar music, because there was a study out just, and it was published just about a week ago, mm -hmm. uh, and it was major news sources uh, with, uh, came out of St. Mike's Hospital and, and Music and Health Research Collaboratory uh, at the University of Toronto that was taking music that the people were very familiar with versus unfamiliar music and found that there were cognitive neuro, you know, neurological changes that could be observed in the brain as a result of listening to familiar music. So what we're doing is comparing the effect on actual cognitive performance with listening to familiar music versus vibrotactile stimulation. And so uh, unfortunately in the study uh, that, you know, the one that was published that observed the effect of familiar versus unfamiliar music, they didn't see a noted cognitive effect. They noted uh, a brain effect with MRI uh, imaging, mm -hmm. but they didn't see it so much in actual cognitive performance. Whereas what we have observed and what was observed with mice and subsequent human uh, studies at uh, MIT is that there actually is a significant cognitive improvement. Uh, you know, similarly, we see this with pain, that, that we can mm -hmm. dramatically reduce pain and so, you know, for me, the enthusiasm and the potential future work is in the, this mysterious effect of vibration on the human body from a cellular level, basically at the molecular level. And, you know, with COVID, uh, we started looking, because COVID is a blood disease, in essence, uh, you know, inflammation or infection of, of the endothelial lining of the blood vessels is, you know, is a significant factor in this. And we felt that if you know, what we saw was, and what we'd known before, is that vibration can stimulate the endothelial lining and release nitric oxide and contribute to blood flow. And okay. then out of uh, a year ago, August, there was a paper out of uh, the Nordic countries, I think it was Sweden, um, that showed that nitric oxide was one of the potential very positive treatments against COVID. And, but it's difficult to administer. You can't just, you know, there's not a nitric oxide pill or, you know, an inhalation and it, and it uh, vanishes rapidly. And so our theory was that if we could release nitric oxide with vibrotactile stimulation, potentially we could create a, a great counter force to the inflammation of COVID you know, and it's taken us a year to almost to get funding and to get uh, ethical approval. And now we're ready to recruit and, and to actually do this with patients looking at uh, the, the cognitive effects of long COVID or, you know, and we might add a, a dimension to this. Uh, we're still in discussion whether we can do this something relationship to the effect of vaccines, uh, that whether the vaccine itself may have an effect on reduction of inflammation or an increase, you know, we, we, we don't know, it could go either way. Mm -hmm. But we're interested also now because of the the, the state of, of vaccines um, to look at that. So 
that's you know that's a current interest. But the the fact that vibration applied to the body can have uh, hemodynamic effects on blood flow, uh, etc., uh, is an exciting. And I hinted at that in my TED talk, indicating that that might be a case. And now also looking at uh, musculoskeletal applications, and I think I've just hinted at that. We've really done a lot more with that, looking at how vibration may build bone cell density. Or now we're looking at, you know, discovered, for example, that 40 hertz, so this magic frequency, is uh, not just limited to um, neural uh, effects, but also appears to be the frequency at which the thoracic spine is most flexible and is the resonant frequency of the spine. And so um, applying stimulant vibrant st vibration stimulation to to the spine may you know also result mm -hmm. in incredible uh, effects you know some of which is pain reduction We've just heard the second movement, Adagio, of Johann Sebastian Bach's Violin Concerto in G minor, BWV 1056, performed by Alina Ibrahimova on violin, accompanied by Arcangelo, directed by Jonathan Cohen. Today we are speaking with Dr. Lee Bartel, 
Dr. Bartel is a professor emeritus of music and former associate dean research at the Faculty of Music, University of Toronto, and the founding director of the Music and Health Research Collaboratory. So just to go back a little bit to the treatment of COVID. So this would be administered basically through sound as well. Is that correct? Yes. So what we would do is we'd administer it through vibrotactile and auditory means. The idea Mm -hmm. that in this case, vibrotactile is the most important because it is an actual vibratory shaking of the body or the blood vessel. And you can do it with a small device or you can do it with a big device. So in the case where we have a chair device that we can have the person sit on with, you know, it's like subwoofer type transducers, or, you know, a, a more simple device that, that we use, the VTS-1000 by Sound Oasis, which has a single transducer and it's portable and it's relatively inexpensive, which is what we, the company is supplying us with that. But Next Wave in Finland is also offering devices. We have one at, at, uh, in, in Toronto for this. So we're using uh, vibrotactile translation of the auditory signal. So from auditory into to vibrotactile that shakes the body and the blood vessels and releases the nitric oxide. Mm-hmm. So is this also by using single, single pitch or is yes. it music that it, includes? It could, it could be music because in this case, the, Evidence shows that vibra- the, the vibrotactile or the vibratory stimulation of the body has an effect from two hertz or even less than two hertz. So the whole body vibration platforms that people stand on. Mm-hmm. And you can also immediately make the link to saying, well, does it even have to be a device? In other words, if the person were walking or jogging, the frequency at which the legs are hitting the ground and consequently mm-hmm. having a, a shock impact on the on the blood system uh, is probably around two times a second or three or four times a second. And that's the frequency at which whole body vibration has found that blood is circulation is improved. But it has also been shown that someplace between 30 and 130 hertz uh, auditory based vibrotactile stimulation also has that effect. So okay. the blood system isn't just limited to us, you know, a narrow band of frequencies like the brain seems to be, but it is, it is related to uh, the shaking of the body. And so music that has a good strong base and you can translate that through a vibrotactile device to the body could be, you know, anywhere between, you know, 27, you know, the audit, you know, the range of the piano or the auditory range up to about 130 hertz. Beyond that, it gets too too small a vibration. Though there are a few studies that even show higher frequencies. But the so the low, the bass range of music will potentially have that effect if it is translated into vibration. But that's okay. the key. All right. So in effect, music could, since now we're uh going through the pandemic. So in effect, music could literally be used to treat COVID. It could potentially help the body fight COVID by Mm -hmm. increasing the anti-inflammatory function of the body and and blood flow. Yes, that's that's our theory. Whether that's true or not remains to be seen, but that's theoretically that's the case, yes. You know, I'm very interested in this field. So many of the things that I've read and and based on conversations with many of my colleagues, things and advances that are uh, happening right now, and I mean, for a while now, in terms of the use of music and sound and healing, they border on what used to be considered science fiction. Yeah. Uh, It's a field 
with so much potential, as you know, of course, and, and just wonder. Wonderful. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about the Music and Health Research Collaboratory? That is at the University of Toronto, is that correct? Yeah. Yes, it is. Okay. It, uh, it was founded, I worked with uh, Don McLean, who was the former dean at McGill and had started uh, you know, a very major um, Kermit Research Center that gained incredible international uh, recognition. And when he came to Toronto, he really wanted to, to do something which would make a significant contribution at the University of Toronto. And because my, I happened to be there and my interest had been in music and health for some years and that had, we had proposed a music therapy program which didn't get off the ground. And so I then uh, worked with him to create the Music and Health Research Collaboratory, which was established by the Provostial, you know, authorization in 2012. And, uh, and so it, it's, it functioned in a sense with the idea that it would draw together as an umbrella the research related to music and the human health, uh, whether this was, uh, as, you know, whether it was neuroscience, neuropsychology, uh, whether this was um, medical as in musical therapy, or whether this was musicological as in uh, people looking at uh, shamanism or mm-hmm. health practices in the you know the 12th century in and hospice type uh, hospitals that were being set up in the medieval period. Uh, so we were looking at that whole gamut as the umbrella for music and health research collaboratory. And collaboratory, the word, because in a sense we wanted to bring together a collaboration of laboratories within the University of Toronto, so whether they were in Mississauga campus with Glenn Schellenberg or Sandra Treyab in psychology, or Mark Schmuckler uh, at, uh, at the uh, Scarborough campus and their labs that were looking at cognition or uh, childhood stuff. We wanted to draw in labs like Laurel Trainers, right, Master University. In other words, we were trying to put together in the greater Toronto area, all the efforts that were being made around music and health in some form, whether it was child development. And that was very successful. We had a great buy-in. We had Mm -hmm. something like 50 people within the medical system cross-appointed to Music and Health Research Collaboratory. And uh, so when I retired in 2017, or just I should say before that, around 2014, one of the, the great achievements from our perspective was that the University of Toronto administration seemed very enthusiastic about this and supported it with the uh, assignment of a Canada Research Chair, which is one of the, the strong government support for a research direction by uh, allocating a few hundred thousand dollars per year for seven years to that chair. Mm-hmm. And so the vice uh, president of research gave us one of those. And so we engaged in a a search uh, for that, who then also became the director of Mark when I retired. And that was, that position uh, was taken by uh, Dr. Michael Tout, who came from Colorado and who is the innovator, initiator, inventor, whatever the term we want to use, of uh, neurologic music therapy, which is a form of music therapy that focuses on neural 
function in circuits specifically. So for example, melodic intonation therapy, so that a person whose uh, language centers are damaged from the left side of the brain can use sort of the music-based back-channel circuits to, ac to ac access language and thereby can have a rehabilitative function uh, to language function. And so um, he took that position. And so the, I have withdrawn from, from participation in a sense because I retired, but he's also taken the center in a, he narrowed the umbrella, put it that way, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, and every director can, can do what they want in a sense with a, with a center. And so um, it has become uh, also redefined now as the music and health sciences research collaboratory, though the same okay. letters are still being used, because it has essentially removed uh, musicology and those considerations of health uh, mm -hmm. in that general way from it. And it has focused now on the scientific uh, rather than on the qualitative, on the musicological, on the descriptive. And so it has changed in nature in the last uh, four years since he took uh, leadership of it. But it is still a very significant center in Toronto that is doing, you know, an incredible number of research studies. The graduate program with masters and PhD students carries that forward, and so it, it's a center, you know, that we in Toronto can really be proud of, and and is making major contribution to to the field. That is wonderful. But let me ask you: Do you think it's really possible to remove the musicological and historical and ethnomusicological from the scientific? in this field? I personally don't think so. I think they are intermeshed. And that is, in other words, the, the human experiential side, which is what musicologists might focus on, mm -hmm. is a very strong part of it. So I believe personally that the qualitative studies, in essence, which is how we did the case study of the Alzheimer's person, person contributes strongly to the interpretation of the quantitative study, which we did with a, you know, with a pilot mm -hmm. study, the MIT. Th those two belong together. Uh, and so for me, it's a limitation that, that uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm glad it's being picked up by others. Uh, there's been a new institute for music and health that's developing at the University of Ottawa. I'm now a, a member uh, of that institute and uh, contributing to, uh, to the development of a research agenda, which is looking at the musicological and other aspects of, uh, of, the, of the field, as well as the medical. And so to me, you know, a full holistic approach to the role of music within the life of people and how it affects our mental health and wellness and well-being is the mandate I like to see. But, you know, I, you know, I, I recognize and respect other people's decisions as to how to carry the, 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 the thing forward.
We've just heard the first movement of Antonio Vivaldi's Gloria, performed by the Academy of Ancient Music, Choir of King's College, Cambridge, conducted by Stephen Cleobury. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Lee Bartel. Dr. Bartel is a professor emeritus of music and former associate dean research at the Faculty of Music, University of Toronto, and the founding director of the Music and Health Research Collaboratory. Again, what is incredible, and we touched on this before, is that these different uses of music that have been used by cultures across the globe over the last thousands of years are now getting scientific support and and are being utilized that way. So it's it's a it's a brave new world. Yes, in, really in the world is. of medicine as well. And what surprised me was, for example, when I, I first started looking at at uh, theta brainwave frequency, you know, four to seven hertz. <laughs> area, uh, the liminal state where we're sort of halfway between sleep and awake, Mm -hmm. uh, the state that people intend to go to in deep meditation. And I thought, well, you know, five hertz frequency or so, and uh, that we had a gamelon, which is uh, Balinese gamelon, which is often uh, people are, you know, they they attribute the, the state that the performers get into as sort of a spirit spiritual state of of trance Mm -hmm. and so when i sat in the gamelan and played the various instruments of the like of the same instrument they were often out of tune to the point of about five hertz so you were getting this effect and it occurred to me these people sitting among these instruments that are all slightly out of tune within the theta range may well contribute to a state i then played a tibetan bell that's used in, in meditation and the bell itself seemed like bad construction, so that it, when you struck the bell, it rang with a wah 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 effect, also in the theta level. Mm-hmm. So perhaps it's not accidental that some of these musical devices, which are associated with spiritual states, in fact have a scientific explanation. Similarly, when I looked at the frequency of shamanistic drumming, it was often in the theta alpha state. And so when you just regularly drum at that state, you are potentially contributing to bilateral coherence and to an entrainment of a theta and alpha state and boosting what in fact is the one of the primary brain frequencies in the thalamus area, which is 10 hertz, through that kind of a what we consider entirely, you know, the, the, the domain of ethnomusicology and you know its human dimension. Suddenly it, for me, it has a scientific explanation. This is such a wondrous, wondrous field. How long do you think until it starts trickling into modern medical treatments and what is oh, being prescribed? Um, yeah, that's my hope. You know, my, at the end of the mm-hmm. TED Talk, I was optimistically saying there may be a future in which the doctor reaches for the prescription pad and prescribes, you know, 30 minutes or 23 minutes of 40 hertz stimulation. Mm-hmm. I think that that is coming, but slowly. Uh, I think the advances like the work at MIT and their visual and auditory stimulation sound so appealing for Alzheimer's that they, in fact, have received a, a preferential application at FDA for okay. people of this kind of a device. So it may be around the corner. I think there are other applications which we don't associate with music but which have a vibratory frequency. And mm-hmm. so applications, for example, of shockwave 
uh, therapy, which is a very crude and potentially dangerous application when people use it themselves, but in the hands of a, of a, of a trained person. And I'm consulting with a company right now that is, it's a new company from less than a year old in uh, Canada called Neurospinal Innovation that is taking a treatment that has been used in, in 25 clinics in 13 countries, not in North America, one, one in Canada called KKT, Conkinetic Treatment. And I was asked to consult because they are using 50 to 80 hertz vibratory stimulation driven by you know, a sound generator. So this is a transducer that's basically like a, a pen-sized stylus that mm-hmm. they apply through analyzing x-rays at this point uh, of the uh, cervical area of the neck and very specifically at a specific angle and inclination to C1, the, the first, the atlas joint, and finding that this vibration applied, so 50 to 80 hertz, zone, um, there's also some lower frequency involved for about four minutes, can have a very dramatic effect on realigning the spine, on improving disc hydration. Uh, research studies that was done at University of Calgary shows that there's an effect on the mRNA, which these days people know about because of the mm-hmm. work with the uh, vaccines, but they're looking at uh, the effect on upregulating uh, some of the disc-related proteins, uh, so collagen 1 and collagen 2 and Decaron and Allergan and all these things are affected by this four minutes of vibration. And the, and the question is, you know, wow, is this possible? And this company is now preparing uh, the, the technology and so on to try to apply this within physical therapy and other clinics, pain clinics around North America within the, they're hoping to launch within the next year uh, into, into these locations. So, yeah, I think it's coming in all sorts of unusual and unexpected ways where, you know, the guy from the music school who I was a music education prof and a performer is working with a spinal orthopedic company to apply sound vibration to affect MRNA and, you know, a spinal alignment, you know, like who, who knew? This is so very exciting. So very exciting. Dr. Bartel, thank you so very much for being with us today. Thank you for the opportunity. And, and I've enjoyed uh, talking about these things that, you know, that, that keep occupying my mind and, and hoping for, for uh, new answers and, and new treatments. And uh, I think they're coming. Today, our guest was Dr. Lee Bartel. Dr. Bartel is a professor emeritus of music and former associate dean research at the Faculty of Music, University of Toronto, and the founding director of the Music and Health Research Collaboratory. Until next time, stay healthy and happy, and keep listening.